Well, someone who understood what the Great Commission was all about was the Apostle Paul. You couldn't hold him back. Three major missionary journeys that we know about, you can trace this in the book of Acts, and uh, he just had a heart to spread the wealth of the gospel by which he was transformed. And in the first part of this grand book, Romans, uh, which you have obligated me to stay in for such a long time, yeah, I'm blaming it on you, Um, uh, he, in the first part, told us in a very systematic way what is theologically true. And now in the second part of the book, we've been there for quite some time, he tells us, now this is what you are to do with what you now know to be true. And that's the brilliance of the Bible, first right believing and then right behaving. And so that's kind of the, the uh, concise outline of the book of Romans. And so at this point in the book, we're in Romans chapter 15, uh, Paul knows that what uh, God requires fellow believers to do Uh, are things they're not capable in their own strength of doing. And therefore, he does what is very logical and reasonable. He prays to God on their behalf. And so you could see this in Romans chapter 15. We'll pick up in verse 5. That's where we left off some time ago. Romans 15, uh, verse 5, Paul said, this is his prayer on behalf of believers living in Rome. He said, now, may the... Does your Bible say the God... Nobody has a Bible that says a God. Oh, really good. I think you got some good Bibles. It should say the. It's a definite article. Folks, there is one and only true God in spite of claims to the contrary. Paul is making his appeal not to pretenders to the throne, but to the one and only true God. Now, may the God who, does your Bible say who? You have anything like that? Yeah, who, that's like a a reference to personality, not an it, not may the force be with you. God is not an influence, not a concept. God has personality, a mind, emotions, and will. He is real. He is personality. When we speak to God, we're not speaking to empty space. We're not speaking to a thing that is lifeless. We're speaking to the heart of a living being. We're speaking into the ears of a God who cares. And so uh, Paul says, may the God who gives. And I have to tell you, uh, that uh, verb gives, giving, perhaps is one of the most defining characters of the one characteristics of the one true God. He's not a withholder. He's not a, an exploiter nor an accumulator. He is, no, no, no. He is a giver. What's the most, would you say, well-known verse in all the Bible if you were to do a survey? Yeah, John three sixteen. How does it go? For God so loved that he Yeah, see, there you go. You see that he gave. He is a giver. In that case, we found out he gives his only begotten son. And so Paul thinks it makes sense to petition, to make requests of the God who yearns to give out of the infinitude of his resources. Just ask him. And so he says, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Folks, you and I need the capacity to keep going. That's called perseverance. God gives it. And you and I need the capacity to be cheered on along the way. That's encouragement. God gives that too. Paul is making his appeal to the very personal one and only God who has the capacity, willingness even, to give perseverance and encouragement. And then he says, may he, that particular God, grant you, and here's what he specifically requests on behalf of the Christians in Rome, may he grant you to be of the same mind with one another. That's what he prays for the believers in Rome. But there's a lot of things he could have prayed for him, and he did. But why this particular one? Why is this highlighted? Well, think about the characteristics of the church in Rome. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles was made up of rich and poor, slave and free. It was made up of uh, those who were strong in the faith and those who were new, even weak in the faith. It was made up of males and females, old and young, and all the rest. That was a diverse group of people. And so 
I guess Paul realized very quite logically, in order for them to be in one accord, he needs outside, they need outside help. They don't have it inherently within them to get together and stay together. And so Paul runs to the throne of grace so as to ask God that they, this diverse group of believers might be of the same mind with one another. He knew they needed to be united, but he knew they couldn't be because they're too different. And differences amongst us repel. Let's just face it. Uh, We don't like diversity. We like uniformity. We like to hang out with people like us who speak the same language as us, eat the same foods as we eat. But that's just the way it is. And it's sort of okay, but not as an obstacle to relationships in the body of Christ. So Paul prays against it. He knows to overcome the natural inclination to be hanging out only with those like you, uh, Paul says, I'm going to appeal that God would help you to be of the same mind with one another. And so Paul seeks outside help so as to, as to make it uh, happen. But maybe Paul's missing the point. I mean, diverse people can get together. For instance, um, war brings diverse people together, don't you think? All that has to happen is a diverse people group Uh, is challenged by a common foe, and suddenly they find a basis of unity. They get together so as to defend themselves against a common foe. So that's a kind of a unity. Who needs God's help in getting together in order to go into battle against a common foe? Nobody does. Nations of the world do it all the time, except that kind of unity has a very limited shelf life. At the end of the military conflict, people go home to their own neighborhoods, probably never talk to each other again. But but diverse people can get together and root for the same home team at a football game, can't they? You know, everyone can get together and root for the home team, whether the folks rooting are black or white or uh, uh, males or females, older. What's the difference? Go get them, you know, that kind of deal. That's a kind of a unity. Yeah, but it it too doesn't last very long. You know, a little over four quarters, that's about it. And then everyone goes back to their own neighborhoods and all the rest, and, and there's no meeting of the minds thereafter. So I suppose Paul knows about all this and therefore makes his appeal to the Lord Jesus for help. And so he says, you know, I'm praying to this God that you all might be of the same mind with one another. And then he says, according to Christ Jesus. Ah. Paul knew the Lord Jesus is the tie that binds. No, it's not football teams, and it's not a common foe. It's not any of that stuff. It's a a connection that even diverse people can have to the same Lord Jesus. And, and, And unity, therefore, is sought around Christ, who is the center. And so he says, I'm praying that you could get it together, that you could be of the same mind towards one another according to Christ Jesus. And why is this so important? Why is Paul making an issue of it? He opens in prayer in verse 5, introduces the mandate uh, in verse 6 and on, that is that we get it together. Why is it so important that we get it together? Well, here's the answer, verse 6 so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's saying? Unity in Christ is true worship that brings glory to God. Worship offered to God by a divided church is not true worship at all. It has to be offered, according to Paul, with one accord and with one voice. Worship offered by a fractured and divided congregation is noise. It's not a pleasant sound. And the disharmony in the midst of the body of believers is noise, not only to God, but also to spectators on the outside watching how we conduct ourselves on the inside. If we can't get it together and stay together in spite of our diverse differences, if we haven't found common ground in Christ, uh, uh, we, we don't really have much to offer 
to a fractured, disenfranchised world. So Paul is saying, here's the reason for unity in my appeal to God that he bring you together. It's an act of worship, just like you're singing. So you're living together as one in spite of your differences, brings glory to Almighty God. It's an act of worship. So Paul prays that we lift up not only our voices as one, but also our lives in worship to the one true God in such fashion that onlookers take a look, see the harmony, and glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But how is it that this kind of Unity in the midst of diversity could bring glory to God. Well, here's how. Uh, Answer this question. Who else could pull it off but Almighty God? You tell me who could get blacks and whites together. You tell me. I'm not talking about legislation that obligates it. I'm talking about a willing and open heart on the part of both groups to get it together. Who else could do it? Save Almighty God. Who could get older citizens and younger citizens to respectfully and with esteem be a worshiping community, lifting up one voice to God? Nobody can but Almighty God. Who could keep weaker members of the faith together with stronger members of the faith without them in frustration wanting to kill each other? Only Almighty God, the United Nations, is a disunited organization of nations. They haven't pulled it off. No civil rights commission could get us to respect one another by external legislation. There has to be some change on the inside, and that can only come about when the Lord takes up his residence inside of our lives. And so when the world out there, everyone's killing each other. Did you know that? Everyone's killing each other. You know, when we go on missions trips to Israel, you need like a scorecard to figure out, now who hates who? This one hates that one and this one hates... I mean, it's just, it's, it's confusing to figure out what's going on. And it's going to be not too much different here, even, even in the States. And so can you imagine if by some means those out there could see uh, those of us in here, in spite of our differences and diversity of complexion and other things, getting together according to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you see the glory would go to him. They must be possessed by a power source we know not of but want to know more about. This God apparently not only can hold the atom together, it appears that he could hold different demographics together in a way no one else can. And that's why Paul is saying, it is so essential uh, that members of the body of Christ get along and finish the course together. It's essential. It's our primary. And they'll know you are Christians by your... Yeah, see, see, see by your love. So Paul knows that. So people can be attracted to God or repelled by God by how they see us claiming to know God getting along. And, and our unity is so important that in his last recorded prayer, this is what uh, God the Son the Lord Jesus prayed. You can tell a lot about what's important to a person based on what they say last. This is the last recorded earthly prayer. It's in John chapter 17. Uh, I'll read a few verses, starting with verse 11. Listen. He said, I'm no longer in the world. He said that to the Father. He already saw himself um, ascending out of it after crucifixion and resurrection. I'm, I'm no longer in the world. He said this to his followers. This was in anticipation of his fate. I'm no longer in the world, and yet... They themselves are in the world. He's praying to the Father. Father, I'm no longer in the world. My destiny is done. It is sealed. They, his intimate followers, they, he said, are in the world. I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one 
even as we are. Oh, my goodness. The oneness of the triune God, the Trinity, God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit, three in one, diversity, unity. And the Lord prayed for the unity of his diverse followers to mirror the uh, diversity yet unity in the Trinity. Father, make them to be one just like we're one. Are you kidding me? He's talking about gruff, rough Galilean fishermen with unbelievably out-of-control personalities like Peter. And then more gentle ones like John. You know what I mean? Temperamentally, they had nothing in common. And the Lord is praying that they might be, they might be one. And then John 17 goes on. Uh, focusing on this theme of unity, verse 20. I I don't ask. The Lord is still praying to the Father. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who who believe in me through their word. I I think we could be numbered in that. I'm not just praying for the 12. I'm praying for others who, because of the ministry of the 12, will come to hear of me and and know me. See, the, the, the 12 perpetuated the gospel, perpetuated the gospel, one generation to the next, so that it caught up with you and me, and we're saved down to this very day. And the Lord is saying, I'm not restricting my prayer uh, for unity just to them. I'm, I want to pray for unity uh, across the world in the body of, of, of Christ. And he says, verse 21, John 17, that they may all be one. There you have it again. That they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that, here's the deal, so that the world may believe you sent me. One of the greatest impediments to our evangelistic efforts is we can't get it together. And the world can't see evidence of a living Savior holding us together. If he, this Jesus, who we claim to be the Savior of the world, has no holding power, Uh, corporately, in the body, uh, named by his name? Why should people think he could hold them tightly in his grasp throughout eternity? Disunity detracts from our evangelistic Great Commission efforts. That's what the Lord said. Verse 22 of John 17, the glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. How many times does the Lord have to repeat that? Oh my goodness, it's important. He goes on to pray, verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Perfected in unity. I think many of us live as if we can be perfected in isolation. No, it doesn't work that way. Did you know God did not save us out of the world into sort of like a cave? He saved us out of the world into a family. (laughs) Every individual is important, but this is not an individual thing. Yeah, I got it. Entry into the family of God is by personal expression, individual expression of faith in the Lord Jesus. I understand that. But then what we enter into is not a separate, isolated, just me, nobody else kind of a deal. We're in a new domain, a new family, brothers and sisters with the same Father, and the Lord wants our unit, our perfection to take place, our growth to take take place in that body. Perfection in unity. In such fashion that the world takes note. Oh my goodness, look how those people love each other. So what is the nature of this unity Paul is speaking about, the Lord Jesus prayed about? Uh, uh, Don't misunderstand. Unity is not at all the same as unanimity. Unanimity means everyone in the group has the same opinion. That's no big deal. The world's doing that all the time. You just get together. You join your club, your political party, whatever it is, where everyone agrees with you. That's called unanimity. That doesn't require any outside help. It's just what we all do. Unity is not unanimity, but it's also not uniformity. Uniformity means everyone's the same. Now, we just do that naturally, too. Everyone is the same. It always amazes me how I shouldn't pick on young kids, but hey, none of them are here. So, oh, a few of them are here. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> You know how young kids want to, to sort of be fashion nonconformists? Are you kidding me? They all look the same. It's, it's the most conforming 
effort at fashion nonconformity I've ever seen. Whenever, it's, it's, uh, I guess we old folks are the same way. But, but So unity is not uniform. You know what unity is? Listen, listen. I've been working on a definition. I, I don't think I have this sort of figured out yet because I'm struggling with it. But, uh, but I'll give a shot. Unity is oneness of heart produced by God's spirit and due to a common salvation and a common purpose. Unity. Common salvation. We share in our faith in the Savior, and now we have a common purpose. Go tell others. That's the unity to which we're being called. So then, since the quality of our unity either attracts or repels people from God, Paul says this in verse 7. Simple. He said, therefore, in light of everything he said before, therefore, verse 7, accept one another. Boy, that's not to be taken lightly, except, do you know there's absolutely, to my knowledge, no commandment in the Bible that says, therefore, understand one another. Isn't that good? God is just so gracious. You know, he knows we can't pull that off. How are you going to understand each, each other? I mean, my wife, um, she, like I remember when we, we met, she would read Agatha Christie novels. To, to, she enjoyed those, to relax. Hey, what in the world? She read like 80 of them. I don't know how many were in the collection. I said, I've got to figure out w- what she's getting out of these. So I read one, then I, it was painful. I read another, and it's like written in English, not American. You know what I mean? It's, what is going on, and why do you need 180 pages to tell me the butler did it? Why do you make me guess? Why can't you tell me that like in page two? Let me get on with it and watch American Idol, which, by the way, is something my wife couldn't comprehend. What do you get out of it? They can't sing is what you would, you see what I mean? So I'm so glad we're in no violation of a divine commandment because God never said, understand one another. Listen, a husband can't understand how his wife can't find anything to wear in a closet full of clothes. And the wife can't understand how her husband can't find anything to eat in a refrigerator full of food. That's, you know, so God knows this. So there's no commandment that says understand. He, it just says accept one another. That's it. That's what it says. Just accept. You know, God is so good. He doesn't command the impossible. And Paul said when we do that, uh, it brings glory to God. The unity... Uh, God brings about amongst very diverse people who otherwise would not spend time together. That brings glory to God. Now, but, but there's something else to motivate us to accept one another. It's this. Christ has accepted us. Whoa. So it says here in verse 7, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. Whoa. little hypocritical. Uh, not to accept others when, in fact, we have been accepted by Christ. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how has Christ accepted me? Well, he accepted us, though we are very different than him. He he accepted us, though we sin. He does not. Uh, He accepted us with our tainted pasts. We all have them. He accepted us with our shortcomings and blind spots and foolishness and very bad decisions. He has accepted us with our impatience and And he has accepted us with our stubbornness. I don't have to go on. You get the picture. Enough is enough. Um, You get the idea. The way he has accepted us is the way we are told to accept one another. It says that. Accept one another just as or in the same way as Christ has also accepted us. So here's the point. How dare we reject someone whom Christ has accepted? Or to use... um, common phrase today, I guess. How can we unfriend one whom Christ has befriended? This is my, uh, my vain attempt to be relevant and get with the program. <laughs> Apparently, you, you friend someone by clicking something on a computer or something like that. I mean, folks got to be desperate for friends to wait for you to, to, to think about it and check off. Okay, fine. Uh, yeah, you can be my friend. And you can unfriend people. You could, I guess you take your, I don't know what you do. You can unfriend, you just, how do you, how do you even fall out of sorts with someone you don't even know? It's just a computer. But anyway, 
how do we, how do we, see, we can't do that. So the, so the text says, accept one another, just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. He is glorified by his acceptance of us. And he is glorified by our acceptance of one another. Now, here's the trouble. Um, we really struggle, even as Christians, with this notion of God accepting us, and I'll tell you why. We don't see anything all that attractive in our own lives. That's the way it is. We kind of figuratively speaking look in the mirror of our life. We don't see anything very lovable there and therefore have a struggle imagining God found something. We don't look very special. We look ordinary or worse. And so we're on this quest to find some redeeming value, something that can evoke a favorable response by God. But the longer we get inside of ourselves, we're actually the, the more ugliness we see, the more depressed we get. So it's very, very difficult for us to get this notion of God's acceptance. And here's the thing. We're missing the whole point. It has nothing to do with us being special. It has to do with him being special. He's so special that he will accept spiritually unattractive people like you and me. He is so special that he will graciously invite people like you and me into his family. He's so special that he's not afraid about getting cooties by hanging out with us. He's so special that he knows we're not going to communicate our corruption to him. No, he's going to communicate his holiness to us. Don't you see? The worse we are when we accept the acceptance of God, the more he gets glorified. Every significant person in your life may have rejected you. If God, the Most High, one and only God, If he accepts you, though other people have accepted you, it's because he's special, not because you are. So I just found a way to relax and stop trying to find something that justifies God's acceptance of you in you. There's nothing. There's nothing. Nothing. You're worse than you think. So am I. It's about God. It's about his grace. It's about his mercy. And when we suddenly get this and tell people about it, God gets the glory, not us. Secondly, he gets the glory not only when we accept his acceptance, but when we accept one another. Because once again, what other person or program has succeeded in pulling it off? Every study indicates um, uh, 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 Americans are a more polarized society, not just along racial lines, all kinds of lines than ever before in our history. We cannot get it together. We cannot get it together. You know, you think about Islam. We think of Islam as a big, monolithic, giant uh, uh, threat. Well, we're wrong about a lot of things, not the least of which is Islam is not monolithic. Do you know how many warring factions there are under the umbrella of Islam? Oh, my goodness. What do you think all the bombings in Iraq and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Shiite Muslims against Sunni Muslims? They're killing each other. I'm not trying to put Muslim people down. It's no different than Baptists at a business meeting. It's the same. All right, maybe not. Wow. That wasn't funny, was it? My point is, who can get us together? Polarized groupings of people. If the Lord Jesus succeeds in it... He gets glory for it. So that's why Paul says, accept one another. Do this. It brings glory to God. Now, I suppose I ought to pause here just for a second and clarify what I'm saying. Um, lest perhaps I've, 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 um, I've not uh, n- n- uh, defined clearly enough. What does, what does a call for unity really mean? Does it mean we accept everybody's ideas and thinking about stuff? No. I mean... Does unity, is it a call for compromise? Do we compromise for the sake of the greater good of unity? In other words, is it unity at all costs? Absolutely not. We're not allowed to compromise on essentials of our faith. But the point is, uh, we have to be sure that what we think is essential is really essential. So let me take a shot at it. I think what I'm about to share with you are non-negotiable essentials for those with whom one Christian can enter into fellowship and have unity with another. If two Christians can have unity, it has to be, in my opinion, around these things. These cannot be dispensed with. One is the divine inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of the Bible. I have to tell you, if someone has a different point of view, if someone says, well, the Bible contains truth, 
certain aspects, but is not truth. I, I, you know, I'm, we're talking different languages. I mean, I just, and I'm not going to change. No, no, that's important. To, how about this God manifesting himself as three persons? You know, I'm not compromising the notion of the Trinity because it is obvious in the Scriptures. This is how God manifested himself. To me, that's a non-negotiable. How about this one? The deity and humanity of Christ. How much God is Jesus? Oh, all. How much human is Jesus? All. The full humanity and full deity of Jesus in one person. Could you explain that to me? No, you can't. Neither can I. I'm not worried about it. It's called the... Listen, even what it's called is a bizarre... It's called the hypostatic union. Isn't that cool? I spent four years in seminary uh, to learn that. I don't know what it means. But it's... Is it somewhat impressive? All right, so it was worth the money. Okay, it's, it's how, how, could, how could the Lord be fully God, fully man, without sin? What about, I can't compromise on that. No way. This is the Lord Jesus. How about this? The sinfulness of uh, humankind. I don't think we make mistakes. I think we sin. And the reason we sin is not because we grew up in a deprived environment, single-parent household. Or weren't breastfed. We sin because we is sinners. We're just doing what we what we we're just living out our nature. So so the, so, so the fundamental sinfulness of man. I think that's not negotiable. How about how about Christ's substitutionary atonement for those sins? He took our place so as to cover in His blood. For the scarlet nature of our sin. But I don't think you can dispense with that. There's no way to negotiate. I'm not looking for unity with someone who does not accept Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross. How about this one? Salvation by, this is a reformation principle. Don't be scared by the word reformation. You know our theological roots are from the reformation. That's another polarity that's happening, in my opinion, oftentimes needlessly in the body of Christ, you know, because people are afraid of the, of, the, of the dirty word Calvin. Are you kidding me? So Reformation principle, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Non-negotiable. Any one of those things. You take them away, we don't have fellowship. How about this one? Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. You just come up with some alternative explanation as in Islam. He didn't really, Jesus didn't, uh, when he died on the, on the cross, it wasn't really uh, him, physical body. It was a spirit, an apparition. You know, Islam teaches that. Did you know that? Yeah. Uh, and liberal Protestant denominations teach things just as sort of um, biblically incorrect. No, the Lord Jesus uh, was bodily, physically, visibly, uh, crucified and, uh, and resurrected in the same fashion. How about Jesus' uh, second coming? Man, if you don't believe he's coming again, I'm not going to work on fellowship, theological fellowship with you. I mean, it's, 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 I'm not going to compromise. Something's got to give. You've got to get out of darkness and come my way, but I'm not coming your way. No, no, Jesus is coming again. In the same fashion, we stood on the Mount of Olives not long ago, actually read the passage in Acts. What are you getting so surprised about? In the same fashion in which you saw him leave, he's coming back. Well, what was the fashion? Literal, visible, bodily, physical. No ghost, no apparition. What are you talking about? How about this one? The eternal glory with Christ in heaven for believers and eternal punishment in hell for non-believers. There's not a thing in there that's up for grabs, in my opinion. Not a thing. How about this one? The existence, personality, and work of Satan. Now, if you say, oh, Satan's a concept of evil, sort of the metaphor, embodiment. He's a, are you kidding me? He has personality. He fell from direct access to Almighty God, thrust down to this earth. That's one of the reasons why this earth is so stinking polluted. It has nothing to do with having the wrong light bulbs. It has to do with the prince of darkness establishing the domain of darkness here on earth. 
for crying out loud. But if you don't believe in the literal existence of, 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 of Satan, well, I, I, yeah, I, I, you know, let's talk about something else because we don't, there's just no common ground. To me, those are some, not all, some of the essential uh, doctrinal uh, truths of the faith, non-negotiables. But, though we cannot, just for the sake of getting along, compromise on those kinds of things, there are a number of beliefs and practices that, though they are important for sure, are not essential in order for us to get along together. For instance, true, sincere, authentic believers can disagree about God's sovereignty and human free will and how they work together with respect to our salvation. I would rather just enjoy the diversity of opinion than split over it. I would rather just say, I don't know how divine sovereignty and human responsibility work out with respect of salvation. They just do. I'm fine with, I'm fine with that. Now, the last time I said something like that, someone who happened to listen in uh, uh, on the streaming thing sent a rather scathing email saying, how dare you? stand up as a minister of the cloth in front of people and, uh, and indicate you don't know the answer. What do you say that will not get you in trouble? How, how arrogant, how pompous to think um, there's a virtue in a, a minister stating with certainty what cannot be stated with certainty. How is that a valuable thing? Folks, a God fully comprehended is no God at all. I don't worship an equal of mine who I can apprehend with my IQ. I bow before a king I cannot wrap my intellect around. I'm not ashamed at all to say I don't know answers to all the questions introduced by themes in the Bible. I can't wait to stand in the presence of the Most High God when it'll all make sense. Until then, back off. So I'm going to probably hear from this guy again. So that's a, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to unfriend him. No longer my computer friend. But anyway, here, so we can, you know what? We can disagree on Bible translations. Please don't. I'm not saying that's a frivolous issue. It's an important issue. Not every Bible translation is as good as another. I got that. I understand that. It ought to be a subject studied, looked at, and, and so on. I, I, I understand that. I, I just don't think it's essential for you and I to, to come ultimately to a point of agreement about whether the King James Version is the only inspired version. I mean, we can just argue that lovingly until the time of the return of the Lord Jesus and he'll settle, he'll settle it for us. I'm just really thrilled that various ones of us are reading anything. <clears throat> How about this one? It's totally different. Uh, should you take, if you're a Christian, should you take, should you accept medication for anxiety or depression or is that a taboo if you're a Christian? Do you know there's a lot of difference of opinion about that issue? I accept the difference of opinion. I got an opinion. You got your I didn't say it's unimportant. I just say it's not an essential over which we have to come to a final point of agreement before we have unity for crying out loud. Don't do that. Don't do that. How about this one? The whole issue of divorce and remarriage. There's no issue. I have personally studied more and spent more time on than that. Why? Because I have so many questions and still do. In seminary, that's the issue I majored on. Not role of women or modes of baptism. Divorce and remarriage, why? Because that affects all of us. That's life. That's, that's pain. That's hurt. That's hope or non-hope. And a minister's counsel in this regard is such a serious matter. I have a point of view, I have a perspective on the subject, but I know 
godly Christian men and women who have a different perspective on it. I'm not talking about those who've who've thrown the Bible away, but who have studied just as much as I think I have and have arrived at a different conclusion. I don't I don't know how I don't know how to to, to, to explain the legitimate differences in that particular area. I just know they exist and and I don't want to divide from other, others in the body of Christ who see those issues differently than I do. How about church polity? That means how you organize a church. Do you know the New Testament doesn't legislate it? Why? It leaves it up to the local body to sort of figure it out, what you think is best. I don't want to argue over, over how, you, how, you, how you vote, how you do this, how you elect deacons. I mean, every church has it different. It's okay, we can share our opinions, but I don't have to be in essential agreement with anyone over that in order to have fellowship in Christ. How about, I mentioned women's roles in the church. You know, some people say a woman, even with a teaching gift, must never teach a mixed group of men and women. Others say, of course she could, as long as she's not the primary teaching elder in the church, namely the senior pastor. I'm telling you, there's differences of opinion there. You say, well, the Bible says, in First Timothy, yeah, but someone else sees First Timothy differently and has studied it in the original Greek just like you did. So we just got to, we got to, some of the things we have to hold with an open hand. I don't want to divide over these. How about spiritual gifts? I have a point of view on, on uh, what's called the sign gifts today. Mine is fairly narrow. What could I tell you? I, I, I think my position best explains the totality of scripture on the subject, but I know very godly people who think I'm out to lunch. In that particular, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. They're family members. You see, the basis of our unity is not what I think about tongues and they think about tongues. It's about using our tongues to praise Almighty God who saved us both, for crying out loud. How about uh, details about the end times? I have a notion of the chronology, the unfolding events leading us uh, to the uh, uh, ultimate end of things. You know, I, got, I get it on my mind, laid out chronologically. But when it comes to the details, lots of people uh, disagree with me. Lots of people. I, you know, I just like it. I, I think we, we help each other. We learn from each other. We, we examine Scripture together. Look at here. Uh, Christ is returning. There's only two options. Those who have the Son have eternal life. Those who do not have the Son shall not see life. I got that. When it comes to the details, we just have to leave room for a lot of differences in perspective. How about this one? Uh, Tattoos. That's a good one. I can't tell many people are saying, what do you think about tattoos? You know what I mean? Not for me. I'm not, you know, what do you, I'm just not, uh, you know, See, my body is getting more wrinkly. And so it's going to like ruin a tattoo. And you know what I'm saying? But, but if it's, if some Christians think it's absolutely a prohibition. Others examining Old Testament texts uh, interpret that different. What about smoking cigars? What about that? I can go on and on and on. I don't think it's a healthy habit. I don't do it. But I'm not going to disfellowship someone, a Christian saved by the blood of the Lamb, who smokes cigars. I mean, he's going to probably get to see the lamb sooner than I am <laughs> if he keeps that up. But, but that's, his, that's not an essential. So you see, again, Paul here is not, is not calling upon us to accept everyone's beliefs and behaviors. He's calling upon us to accept everyone whom Christ has accepted. Then what happens in verses 8 to 12, I'll spare you this. Paul quotes from four Old Testament passages of Scripture to make this unilateral point. In those passages of Scripture, he's showing people, do you know that though Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, he's not just the Messiah who came to the Jews. The big difference. (laughs) He's the Messiah, Jewish Messiah, who came to offer salvation to Jew and Gentile alike. So Paul is saying, if the Lord Jesus had in his mind from before time a family made up of saved Jews and Gentiles, how dare we not grant open arms and open hearts to diverse people groups? That's the point of what happens here in verses 8 to 12. In this day, Paul's day, today too, there's huge differences between Jews and Gentiles. I mean major, huge differences in Paul's day. You know, this kind of thing. And Paul says, but if the, if the Lord embraced 
Members of both people groups, how dare we separate from members of different people groups who have been brought into the fold by the blood of the Lamb? Okay, now this closing, this closing verse, holy Toledo. You know, because Jonathan, you went too long. I'm sticking with that. It's you. It's you. So look at just this closing verse. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't get this. Paul's been speaking about relationships, hasn't he? Unity, how we're supposed to respond to one another in spite of differences. What then does this final prayer, verse 13 is a prayer, what does this final prayer have to do with that? Here Paul prays, that God would fill us with joy and peace. What does this have to do with unity? Think about this. If you have joy and peace in you, don't you think you'll uh, respond better to people around you? <laughs> you know how it is when you're in a funk, in a mood. You don't like anybody. That's why Paul was praying. I'm praying you'd be filled with joy and peace. If you're okay in here, if your inner needs are satisfied and fulfilled, in the byproduct, in the overflow, the fruit, you'll be better to one another. So, so this is kind of what he, what he, what he prays here. And, 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 and notice, he doesn't pray that we have a little joy or a smidgen of peace. He prays this, that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. No, no, not happiness. No, no, joy and peace. Not the absence of hardships. Paul had plenty. Not the absence of sorrow. Even the Lord experienced that. Not the absence of grief. Jesus wept. No, no, no. no. Joy and peace in believing. Believing what? Believing that our sovereign and good God will work all things together for our good. Believing that having been by faith reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus, we are now forevermore at peace with him and that being at peace with him makes it so much easier to make peace happen with one another. Paul prays, therefore, may may this God, he's the God of hope, may he fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that come close to describing you right now? Me? Me? Don't answer. It's just for you. Wow. All joy and peace in believing. Hope. Is that you? If not, why not ask God to make this verse you? Why not ask him to make you characterized by this verse? Why not ask God for joy, peace, and and hope? Notice where it comes from. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope. Look. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Folks, I apologize for the lateness. I just need like three more minutes, I promise. No, you need like three more minutes. Um, Could you stand to your feet and come here? Uh, I've been rambling a lot. Why don't you come here and say, that verse does not describe me. I'm not a verse 13 Christian. I don't have joy and peace. I'm not filled up. What? But since we just read it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, why don't you? What do you say, brother? I'm going on a mission trip tomorrow, and I will cover your blessing. Oh. Stefan, where are you going? Going down Puerto Maldonado. My daughter's Stefan is leaving tomorrow to Peru to serve with his daughter who's a missionary there tomorrow. He covets our prayers. Come on over here, would you please? Uh, just come on up. You can bow. You could, you, you could stand. We're going we're gonna to do something again that is odd. We're going to pray together. We'll pray out loud all at the same time. Don't be ashamed. Look at here. I, I got to tell you something. You know what this text is? It's a prayer sandwich. I'll tell you what I mean. Paul opens in prayer in verse 5, closes the subject in prayer in verse 13. He takes a layer of prayer bread, and he puts on it meat, a commandment, a mandate to be together, and then he puts another layer of prayer on it. Folks, uh, with respect to our lives, prayer has to 
has to be the first thing and the final thing. We have to sandwich our lives, our trip to Peru, whatever it is. We have to sandwich it in between prayer. We have to start out with praise. We have to, we have to end with thanksgiving. We have to sandwich whatever is hard to swallow in life, whatever meat God has given us that we cannot even chew on. We have to make a prayer sandwich at it. We have to do it just like Paul did. We have to bound the circumstances of our life. The first word being prayer, the final word being prayer. We have to say, oh, in the power of your Holy Spirit, oh God of all hope, will you fill me with all joy and peace in believing. I want to ask you who stand here and those of you who are out there, let's do this again. Let's pray all out loud at the same time in, in audible uh, uh, voices, discernible only to Almighty God. But you talk about a sense of unity we're united in our need and our poverty, and we're united in uttering our requests to the one source, the one true God. Let's pray together. What's on your heart? Ask God to fill you with joy and peace and hope. And don't forget Stefan going to Peru tomorrow. Let's uh, all together pray out loud. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let him hear your voice. Lift up your voice. Lord Jesus, hear our prayer, O oh God. Oh, God in heaven, we come to you, needy. Oh, God, fill us with joy and peace. Lord in heaven, I pray for your help, for your assistance. Oh, God, make us to be, verse 13, Christians. In the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, give us a unity in spite of our Thank you, Lord Jesus. What a level playing field, needy we are, beseeching you together. We do. We're not making our appeal to diverse pretenders to the throne. We as a diverse people are making our appeal to you, the one and only God, you who have saved us, even to the uttermost. Thank you for all you have done, are doing, and will do here and in Peru. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.